Good morning, church. My name is Brett. I'm pastor of this people. It's good to see all of you, but especially our guests, those who are with us for the first time and have been with us for a few weeks now. Thank you for making us your home for about an hour on this Sunday. And let me be the latest to say Merry Christmas to you during this holiday season. It's going to be a great one for you as we accentuate the person of Jesus Christ in the season. Turn with me over to the book of Isaiah. We're going to begin our holiday messages. And every year, we go through what it means to worship Christ during this time and the gift that God gave us in his son. So Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. The title of the message is Christmas, the Messiah. Christmas, the Messiah. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Read thus. For a child will be born to us, and a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, verse 7. And there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and evermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Lord, help as we study. Three things I'd like to talk to you about regarding this passage. One, Jesus was conceived, but it was an unusual conception. Two, he carried some things. And three, he was called certain things. So carries, called, and conceived. Let's talk about what it means for Christ to be conceived. Here we have a passage that Isaiah is trying to, trying to explain to his people somewhere around the 8th century B.C., about 800, 700 years or so before the time of Christ, trying to help his people understand who the Messiah would be when he would, when he would come. Now, the Messiah for the Hebrew people was the one who would come and save his people from their issues. Now, we've interpreted that as the person who would come and save us from our sins. But they didn't know that the Messiah would do all that. Isaiah tried to piece it together. Here we have kind of a, a kingly, monarchical ex expression of who Jesus would be. Yet later in his prophecies, in 53 and on, we'd see that he would be a suffering servant, somebody who would die for our sins. Take our whooping, if you will be the substitutionary benefit for us in that he took our punishment and gave us his life. And, and, and the people who read the Old Testament tried to figure out, are these the same people? How can a king save us like this? How can he help us if he dies? They couldn't figure it out. They couldn't put it all together. And so they kind of piecemealed it, thinking, well, maybe he's a king, and then there's somebody else who's supposed to come and do this for us, but we're not quite sure how they fit together. And Isaiah was trying his best to give a message about who the complete Savior would be, the Messiah. We understand him to be that post all of the events, but for, from their perspective, it was really hard to get it. Now, he was prophesying not just to the kingdom of Judah, which happened to be his primary responsibility, and that was in the southern region of, of what we know as the nation of Israel, but his application in prophecy also extended to the northern region and that there were two kingdoms, the kingdom of Israel 
and the kingdom of Judah, and they were the same people group yet had two different governments. And so this prophecy also went up there, and he was hoping that somehow or another the people would come together and get it, and they never got it. Oh, it's always a preacher's hope that people would get it. And rarely do they get it. But his hope was maybe they can hear something here and, and they'll, they'll, they'll repent and, and get hope again. Come back to him in a special way and they just didn't do it. And this is a man who prophesied for the better part of 60 years. He had a very long ministry. Four kings he served under. An amazing ministry of longevity. We don't even know how he passed, but history says that Isaiah was martyred, which would not be dissimilar to many of his compatriots. Martyrdom seemed to be the portion of anybody who spoke truth long enough. But he says something really interesting here. And sometimes we can gloss over this passage or things like it and think that somehow he's just saying the same thing in a different way. Unto us a child will be born. Unto us a son will be given. And it is what we call in, in Hebrew language a parallelism. Meaning two ideas to, conf- to convey the same kind of thought but on, on, with different language. And, and in some respects it is, but in some respects it is completely different. And it rounds out the idea of who we know the Messiah to be. And although the son and child are the same person, very different concepts in how they got here. Yes, indeed, a child was born. Mary became pregnant, and that without another human's uh, addition. No compliment by which normal human beings come to the planet. The word of God literally came into her and it became flesh. Human beings were not, not taken out of the equation and then Mary participated and she was more than just a house. Jesus Christ was 100% man and that coming from Mary, but he was also 100% God. He was not a composite of 50-50. By the way, if you are 50% God, you aren't God. If you're 50% man, you're not man. He was all man, all God. Well, how can anyone be 100% of two things? Exactly. This is the beauty of the mystery. Our minds can only take in so much. It doesn't mean we need to shut off our intellectual capacity or just get so frustrated that we can't figure it all out that we lift up our hands and say it can't be true. No, no, no. When we get to the end of our intellectual capacity and we have run out of the ability to let logic inform us, that's the moment after we have already determined as much as we possibly can with all that we can, looking at all the sources, that is the moment where we lift our hands and say, I am so glad you are bigger than me. Because if God can fit in in your brain, he ain't God. If you can figure him all out, he is not God. Run, 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 run. He's bigger than us. And although we understand him to be the child, and we worship during the season, the child that was given to us, we also have to, to take in fully the fact that he was the son that was given. So the child was born, but the son was given. What we have is God Almighty being granted to us in the form of the Son. Now, we understand God to be a triune being, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That is undeniable. 
and it's not a New Testament creation. It's not a fabrication of somebody's own theology to try to fit in what they don't understand. In the very beginning, God said as he created man, let us make man in our image. There was nothing about the, the, a God in the Hebrew mind that was somehow confused by the fact that he was plural. He didn't say let me. He said let us. Who was he talking to? He wasn't talking to the angels because they couldn't create anything. Let us make man in our image. And as best as possible, we are. We are kind of triune ourselves, aren't we? Body, soul, and spirit. The soul is the mind, will, and the emotions. The body is the flesh. The spirit is that which is given by God that makes you human. It makes you distinct. You're made in his image. That's what separates us from being animals. And I'm a biology major. No, you did not come from a monkey. You didn't. I believe Genesis. And I don't have to sacrifice my intellect to do so. I've studied this stuff. I may not be an expert at all of it. I just know enough to know I'm right. Let us make man in our image. And when we talk about this, this wonderful God who loves us so much, he loved us so much that he gave his son. That was, the, that was the best way he could figure out to save us and help us. If there was another solution, don't you think he would have figured out how to do it? This was the only way. So he gave his eternal son, the one who had ne not been created, never been formed. He always was. God always was. At some point, if, if you have children, they'll, they'll come to you. And, and, and say something like, Mommy, Daddy, who made God? And, and you'll have to say, um, Baby, nobody, nobody made God. And, and you, you can watch their brain just go on tilt. Because everything they see is created by somebody. They, it, it, mom and Dad, you were made by your mom and dad. Book was written by somebody. House was constructed by somebody. Everything that is was made. So who made God? Nobody, baby. They can't get it. He just always was. Now, even though we don't know the how, we have to understand the why. I don't know how God just always was. My brain can't figure it out, but I know it to be true. It has to be true because if God was made, then whoever made God is God. Because God can't be destroyed. He can't have an end. And whatever is created can have an end. If it had a beginning... It can have an end. doesn't have to. We are called to be immortal. That's what we're made to be. But some of us don't get it in time, and our mortality, our mortality comes upon us. And we don't get the privilege of living immortally. We can't be eternal because we have a beginning. Eternity demands that you have no beginning and no end. Immortality says you have a beginning but no end. And this is the beauty of what Paul tries to convey in 1 Timothy chapter 15 and 16. Excuse me, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 16 through 17. He says, now to the king, immortal, eternal, invisible, the only God, be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Now, now listen, he's not just pontificating a wonderful religious statement. He's trying to give some people some information. Now to the king, meaning Jesus, eternal, no beginning, no end. Immortal. Beginning, no end. How can somebody be 
eternal, no beginning, no, and, and immortal begin. How can it, except they be all God and all man? This is the beauty. Is that yes, he had a beginning as a child, but he was always the son. God Almighty cannot be created. He always has been. And the beauty is, if he has always been, he always will be. And I can trust him as much today as I did yesterday and tomorrow. He supersedes over all things. He really has sovereignty over all that exists. Everything must submit to him. That brings me great comfort every day when I realize circumstances are trying to overcome me and I realize the one who created all the things that are trying to overcome me still reigns. Thank you so much. I trust you who is over all, before all, in all, and after all. Child born, son given. And why did it have to be that way? Because you had to have a man who was God in order to figure out how to right all of man's wrongs. Adam blew it. He gave leadership of the planet to Satan. He had the opportunity to obey God. God said, don't eat from the tree. I tell you not to eat from He ate from it. And at, at the behest of the enemy, Satan, and as a result, he became Satan's puppet. His soul was now guided by selfishness rather than giving by greed rather than self-sacrifice. And everything about him now was ruled by another. And all that he possessed now became that which the enemy had, had stewardship over. So much so that the New Testament in 2 Corinthians 4 calls the enemy, Satan, the God of this world. This is why the systems of this world don't run right. They don't reflect kingdom values. Everybody's in it for themselves. You'll find ugly politics in everything. Everything. Somebody trying to get a little bit more. Somebody using subterfuge in order to, to make somebody else seem less in order so that they might gain. It's, why is it that way? If mankind is getting good, why don't we fix these problems? If mankind is really good at getting better, why aren't they already fixed? Because we are messed up and there is a God of this world that is trying to destroy everything, any vestige of anything that reminds people of him. Reminds people of God Almighty. He's trying to destroy it. And it's not like you have such power and influence whereby you might destroy his kingdom. He's not too concerned about you, the devil. He's just not. He just does not like the fact that you remind him of God. You're made in his image and he wants to do anything he possibly can to destroy you. He can't get to God, so he gets to the people that look like him. And if he can destroy this planet, if he can mar it to such a degree that nobody can ever see him as a result of the plainness of creation. Romans said the things that are created shout about him. They plainly tell of his deeds. If the enemy can do everything to make people think, nothing about this planet looks anything like God's involved. He can dissuade them from even finding him. And so he works it in opposition to the Father's will. And God said this, I've got to fix the entire planet. I can't just fix a man. I can't just fix man. I'm going to fix the entire planet. And I'm going to start the way it was lost. I'm going to have a man who is tempted in every way, just like Adam, 
yet experiences victory where Adam experienced defeat. He didn't come and cheat. He didn't say, angel, go down there and fix it. No, no, no. He had to use a man that was tempted in every way, it says in Hebrew, and yet had the fortitude and character on the inside to say, no, I will not bow like Adam did. I will submit to my God fully and wholly because there's more on the line than just my compliance. There are people that have existed since Adam and will exist after me that need the redemptive benefit that I can give as a result of my victory. And as a result of his victory, listen to me, he rose from the dead. And Christianity, everything, everything that Christianity is based on is based on one event. Did Jesus rise from the dead? If he rose from the dead, then everything is true. If he did not, nothing is true. One event. And I'm telling you, I have read so much about this. And I, there's so much evidence. Do you know there's more evidence in Scripture that Jesus Christ lived and rose from the dead than there is that George Washington was the first president of the United States? <laughs> there really is. There, there, there's more evidence. From people, from writings, from extenuated, extenuated writings outside the Bible, more evidence. But we don't want to believe that because we've got to be accountable now. I don't have to be accountable to George. God bless him. I'm a good man. But I don't have to obey a thing he said. Him? This one here? If he's, if he's exactly who he said he is, I got to change my life today. Today. And the fact that he rose from the, from the dead is dependent on this. Did he live right? Did he do what he said he came to do? Did he live such a, in such a way as to be tempted in every way, yet not fall. If he fell once, if he blew it once, then he would have to suffer the penalty for his own sin. He couldn't suffer for yours and mine because the wages of any sin won. Remember, Adam didn't knock off a 7-Eleven. <laughs> All he did was take from a tree that God said don't eat from. He disobeyed once and death came into the world. If Jesus disobeyed once, he'd have to suffer his own sin suffer for his own sin but he didn't do it once he didn't disobey once therefore when death tried to hold him after he died it could not because it had no right to and because it had no right Jesus rose when he rose he rose not just for himself but for all of us saying this oh I mean listen when he said it is it's not Easter but when he said it is finished it's not Easter it's not Easter it's Christmas when he said it's finished what he's saying is the battle that I was supposed to wage against all of mankind's mess-ups, all their sin, it is over. It's over. It, 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 he could have said, I did it. But he'd rather objectify it rather than subjectify it because it was never about him. It was about us. It was about the Father. Lord, I, I did my job. It's all completed. It's done. He was God Almighty. And as a result of being God Almighty, he could live in such a way as to have victory over sin every day. And the beauty is this. He lives on the inside of us now and gives us the same privilege of having that victory every day if we want it. This is why the Christian ought to be more victorious than failing. 
You know, but pastor, Christianity's hard. Wow. Yeah, I know it's not easy. But if you have Jesus living on the inside of you, it is much easier to do the right thing than ever before. That's right. And, and I mean, please, pick, you, ought to, you ought to be wise and pick your version of hard. How's it going for you without him? How's taking that, dear student, that class over again and having to pay tuition twice? How's recovering from adultery, dear husband who blew it? How's that happen? They're going well? They're going well? You who aren't home all the time and your children don't like you anymore, how's that going? You who embezzled funds from your company, how's that going? There are different versions of hard on the planet. I like mine much, much, much more than yours. Mine is hard, but every time I do the right thing that's hard, I get great fruit from it. I get a wife who loves me still. Yeah, 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 yeah. I get kids who love to come home and be with their father and mother because we have a great marriage. And all they've seen is kingdom progress every place we go. I have great friends. I have a great church. I got a great ministry. I am more blessed than I deserve because I've chosen hard. This version of hard is much better than your version of hard. I beg you, choose this version. It'll help you more. He chose this version of heart, and he did it right, and he gives us that victory. He was, a, he was a child given, excuse me, a child born, but a son given. Secondly, he carries some things. It says the government will be on his shoulders. And this government he has will be, will be that which is the throne of his father, David, and it will exercise righteousness and justice wherever he goes. And so Jesus has a government. It's not just about salvation. It's about ruling. First and foremost in your life, he bears the responsibility to help guide your life well. And he wants to do it. But in order for him to do it well, he's going to have to sit on the throne of your heart. You've got to let him be there. It's not just about saving you from all the stuff that you do wrong or driving your life, pulling, pulling your, driving your life into the ditch into which you've, you, you constantly go on the regular. I'm, it's about making sure that you stay on the road. And I'm grateful for his mercy that pulls me out of the stuff that I do wrong. Oh, I am so grateful. But I am more desirous of the grace that empowers me to live right so that I don't need his mercy every day. Are you listening to me? Please hear that right. I need his mercy. But there are times when I depend much more on his grace so I can live right and not have to ask for forgiveness. That happens when you allow him to rule. He is Lord. He is king. This messianic place in in, in your life needs to be more than just that which saves you from all of your junk. Please set him on the throne of your soul. Let him rule over the thoughts of your mind, what comes out of your mouth. Let him rule over your conduct. It's the most integral way to live. It's the way he intended mankind to live. When you get in that realm, no, it's not easy, but it's good. It's right. He helps you to become the best version of you you could ever be. We're not talking about reformation here and changing the old you to become a new you. We're talking about creating a new you and telling the old you bye. That's what happens 
when he sits on the throne of your heart, you make him Lord. And as a result of his lordship, he functionally saves you. Secondly, with respect to government, the government is supposed to rest on his shoulders, right? So what, is, what, is, what does that mean except by way of application? His body, which is the church. His people, which is the group of folks that represent him well on the planet. There ought to be something that allows you to experience a concentration of his kingdom when you walk in a church. There is no one congregation that can ever express all that heaven is. Impossible. It's too multifaceted. And we are too dense. But when you walk in, there ought to be a sense that you have entered into an embassy. It may not look like it. Embassies are sometimes very palatial. They're beautiful. It may not, it may not have everything you want, but there ought to be something that you, you sense when you walk in that says, I've come into a different environment. You know if you go into an American embassy in France, you're going to find CNN on the TV. You aren't going to find the BBC. CNN's going to be on TV. And, 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 and you might find them serving you a, a wonderful steak from Kansas. Texas, wherever you're from where you like steak. They're going to do everything they can to try to replicate America. Because their responsibility is to be an ambassador, an embassy, a representative of where they came from. We were born in heaven. We have been born again. And there ought to be something about every congregation that represents heaven so much so that when people walk in, they say, this is different. Now, we may not do it very well. In fact, there are other congregations that do it so much better than we do. But our aim is to be an outpost of glory whereby you come and you can find healing, you can find help, you can find hope, and you can find a purpose for your living. The government rests on the people of God so that they can build well here so that when people think about heaven, they think about this. They may not be able to find all that they would find in heaven here, but they can find something that allows them the privilege of being different, of feeling different, of believing that whatever is broken can be fixed. The government rests on its shoulders, and, and not only is it my responsibility to build a staff that reflects that on the regular and help people in leadership do that so that even if they're not paid, they are excellent representatives of the kingdom, but it's your responsibility as a witness for Christ. That wherever you go, you carry the government of the kingdom and you represent him well. It's on your shoulders. It's Christmas and I'm yelling, shoot. It's on your shoulders. You ought to be a great representation of Christ, an ambassador wherever you go. It's your responsibility to bring the kingdom. You want God in your workplace? Bring him. Bring him. Do not walk in with a Bible, say we're going to do a Bible study every Thursday at 12 o'clock, and if you don't show up, you're going to hell. Don't do that. That's stupid. That's stupid. That's stupid. That's stupid. That's stupid. And, and we won't back you. I'm telling you, we won't back you. We'll love you, but we won't back you. We'll retrain you, but we won't back you. Arr! The world is looking for, for real. 
They're just looking for people who love God every day and act like it. Please be that. Let the government rest on your shoulders. The responsibility of administration, that's what government is. The responsibility of the administration of the will of the person to whom you serve being carried out in your life. Do that. Lastly, he's called some things. Now, it's hard, it's hard to, to, to encapsulate all of God in one name. It's, it's just almost impossible. I mean, he's, he's too big. And, and, and even if you get it, you, 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 there is one name that, that he, you know, he allows himself to be represented by, and that's Jesus. But there is so much more to God than just a name. And so here we have five. And, and, and it's kind of like the church. You know, you drive in the street and you look at these little storefronts. First Pentecostal Baptist Church of the Holiness of God <laughs> incorporated on the planet missionary in its orientation, church. <laughs> They're trying to get all of what they do in their name. Or like the Fullers, who have four or five names for their kids. Trying to get everybody in there so that they feel identification with their past. And, and, and then trying to give them a sense. I mean, my, this is my boy here, Tellus. That's his name, Tellus. You say, where did you come up with that? Exactly, you know. It's just, you're sitting there and say, what were you trying to do? I don't know, really. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. We were trying. We were, it was a period of our life where we were really fulfilled. We had just moved into our, our first church building where we didn't have to set up and break down anymore. It was a rental, but it was ours, and we were happy. We, we sat 200 seats, and it was really special. And we moved into our first house that we owned. That was really special. We were excited about that. And we had prayed to have four boys, and he was our fourth. All that happened within a week. Within a week. I'm serious. Within a week, we moved into our house, moved into a church building, and had him. And there's a word in, in Greek called, a uh, concept, a uh, study called teleology, which is the study of fulfillment of all things. And I thought, well, we'll name him Tellus. <laughs> it's true. Listen, I come up with this honestly, all right? My mama named me Brett. She liked TV shows. And in 1958, there was a show named Maverick. All right, some, some of y'all old enough. You with me on this one? And, and James Garner was the lead. And then there was another guy who was the sidekick, his brother, and I don't know his name, but he, they, they were named Brett and Bart. And my mother loved the show so much that in 1958, she watched it every day, every week. Every week she watched it. And when I came along in 60, she named me Brett. Now, these two guys were riverboat gamblers. <laughs> they swindled people out of their money. That's what they did for a living. They were in and out of jail all the time. My, my, four and a half years later, my brother came along. Bart! Yeah, Bart! Bart! Yeah! I later had a conversation about, really, Mom? Really? That's the best you could come up with. Swindlers, swindlers. It's hard to get one name for anybody that tells all they are. It's hard. So his is tell us Emmanuel Everett Fuller. <laughs> We got so much stuff in there, I don't have time to tell you why we did that. 
but it's hard. And so his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. What do you say? I mean, how do you get it all in one name? I mean, wonderful, there ought to be, it's not just a quality or an adjective that you ought to use to describe how you feel when something's good. Wonderful literally means he brings wonder to my mind. I just, he's amazing. And if, if you ever get to the place where your religion doesn't allow you to have the awe of wonder on the regular, something's wrong with your religion. Your God is amazing. Every day he's amazing. If only that he puts up with you. He's amazing that he actually endures with bread. Are you kidding me? I don't know how you do it. It makes me wonder. And not only that, Moses, when he asked God, you know, God told him to go to Egypt and deliver the people of Israel, and he didn't want to go, and, and it was one of these, get me out of this thing, and who should, you know, who am I that, that you would send me? It doesn't matter who you are. I'm sending you. It just doesn't matter. God didn't even answer that question. And so he went to, well, who are you? That, you, you if you're going to ask that question, you better ask it in the right attitude. He didn't have the right attitude, I'm telling you. Look at the context, wasn't the right attitude. Who am I? Doesn't matter. Well, who are you? I mean, who, who should I say sends me if I go? And I'm convinced there was a long pause, one of those uncomfortable pauses. God said, I am. Like that really helped him? What? You want, you want me to tell him I am? Simply, what, what does that mean? What, what? Moses wanted one name. And how can you describe the eternal in one name? And so God just says, I always have been, always am, always will be. Just, I, I am. It's the best I can do for you, boy. It's the best I can do. Eternal. Eternal. And the way the Hebrews heard it was, he was the eternal one. Before all things, after all things. Always has been. It's hard. And so Isaiah is trying to break it down as best he knows how to describe the infiniteness of God. Wonderful is his name. Secondly, counselor. And we don't know whether these are separate or together, but I'm going to distinguish them as separate because I think in Hebrew that's where the mind would have heard it. Counselor. He is, he is the embodiment of wisdom. You want good, sound information to make great decisions? Read your Bible. Read your Bible every day. That's where you get the information necessary to not make stupid decisions from which you will need to recover. He is the best counselor on the planet. In the universe, please get his words about what you ought to do best in your life. And if you want to put them together, he's the most wonderful counselor. Mighty God. Oh, there is no power outside of his realm. He, he has it all. He envelops all. He brings it all to bear for your benefit. He doesn't use his power 
to harm or hurt you. He uses it to help. And I am glad he is the only one in the universe who is all-powerful. Because if you had all power, half the people here wouldn't be here. Let one person cut you off. You don't have the character to have all power. You don't. I mean, <laughs> you'd use a GD not knowing exactly what you were saying. And automatically, the person would just pass on and go right to hell. Because you're asking God to damn them. Thank, thank God he is the only one that has all power. Because he's the only one that has a character to use it well. And he's not using it against us. He used it for us. He is so amazing. Mighty God. Eternal Father. This is not confusing the Godhead here because he's talking about the Son. But it's to speak of his eminence and that he is the one through whom all things were made. He's the initiator of things. He's the one that can give you a new beginning, though he starts from whenever eternity begins, however that looks. He can give you a new start. You can wake up with a fresh 24 believing that hope can be yours today, even though yesterday was terrible. No, Charles Barkley, terrible. That's even worse than terrible. He can give you hope. Hope every day. Every moment that you can repent of that which you did wrong and get right. And he wipes the slate clean. As if you had never done anything. He begins afresh. He starts things that couldn't be started except by him. He gives you new hope. Prince of Peace. He rules. Not only does he rule by peace, he rules through peace, and peace is his end game. When all things are going horribly for you, when chaos is reigning every place, it is except in here. Jesus on the boat as I close. The disciples are out in the sea with Jesus. He says, we're going to the other side. Get in the boat, we're going to the other side. All of a sudden, this, this squall comes up out of no place. Now, these were seasoned fishermen, so they would know when not to sail. And this sea, it's called the Sea of Galilee because it's very big. You can't see, you can't see the other side from the shore. It's 10 miles wide. It's big. And so things that come up on this large lake would, would, would be like you were in the middle of the, of, of the ocean. And a storm came out of no place. So we know the disciples would have said, not good to sail now if they had seen the storm on the horizon. Sometimes stuff comes out of no place. You can't plan for it. it wait, 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 I was doing great. Oh my God in heaven, what's going on here? Help me. Just out of no place. And these disciples start bailing. And these are seasoned fishermen now. They start bailing. I mean, they're taking on water. The winds are knocking down the sails. It is horrible. They think they are going to die. That's how bad this storm is. They've lived on this sea all their life. They think they are going to die. And they are bailing as fast as they can, and they can't bail fast enough because the water's coming in quicker than they can get it out. And Jesus is asleep in the hull. He's, he's asleep in the most chaotic time of their lives. And they, they said, we're going to die. They look at Jesus. Peter does. Do you not care that we are perishing? I know you've never said that to God. You faithful Christians have never, ever questioned whether God's around or he sees your situation, cares anything about what you're going through. You've always said, I believe you, Lord. I believe you, Lord. You've always said the right thing. Do you not care that we are perishing? They were mad. 
They weren't asking him to do a miracle. They were asking him to help bail. That's all. They didn't believe anything could change this. Can you just get a bucket? Can you just get a bucket and help a brother? I need some help. Jesus gets up. He gets to the bow of the boat, and he says this. Shh. Hush, be still. It says immediately, the waves stopped and the winds ceased. If you know anything about waves, they don't stop until they hit the shore because there's nothing to stop them. His words were so heavy that they came upon the waters. Listen to me, that Jesus is still in your realm. I know you are bailing as much as you possibly can. You're working but you're taking on more water than you can put out. There's no way you can keep up. What you need to do is stop bailing and get with Jesus in the hull, huddle up with him in the blanket and say, if you're going down, I'm going down. I'll go down with you because I know one thing. You coming back. (laughs) I know you ain't going down all the way. You coming back up. So I'm going to sit in with you. I'm going to pray. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to envelop myself in the presence of God. I'm not going to panic. I'm not going to be fearful. I'm going to trust that my God can say, he rules by peace. I don't have time to to go back over all my points. Let's just pray. (laughs) Daddy, I love you. You're a good God. We thank you that you treat us so well, that you give us ideas about who you are. You let us know why you came. You help us respond well to you so we can honor you with our lives and give you the glory you do. Help us during this holiday season to magnify your purpose in coming so that people who we know can come to the knowledge of the truth.